Really excited to be here this morning. My name is Craig. If you don't know me, I'm the executive pastor here at Adventure. Uh, But I want to introduce uh, Jeremy. So last fall, we began searching all across the country uh, to find someone who would come and lead the next generation ministries in our church to our children and our students. And we found Jeremy all the way out in Louisville, um, southern Indiana, and uh, invited him to come out. They've been here about six weeks now. And uh, I know they're getting to do a lot of day trips and experience San Francisco and Tahoe. And he'll tell you about some other things that he's liking about California. But I just wanted to introduce him this morning because Jeremy's so much an answer to prayer and so much a part of our vision for who we are as a church and how we want to be serving in our community. One of the reasons this was such a priority for us was we began to do some looking around our community. And we discovered that one out of three people who live in North Natomas are under the age of 18. And then we began to look at our church and we discovered that on almost any given Sunday, one out of three people who are here at Adventure are also under the age of 18. And so what Jeremy does at our church and what he's leading all of us to be a part of and investing in the next generation is so critically important. Beyond that, We also know that almost 80% of everyone who ever makes a decision to follow Jesus does so before the age of 18. Now, that's one of those statistics that you hear and you can kind of wonder, well, now is that really true? But that's an easy one. We just tested. How many of you made the decision to follow Jesus before you turned 18? Look around the room. Does that look like about 80%? And so... What Jeremy is doing is so important and so vital to who we are as a church and how we are bringing Jesus' hope to an imperfect world. And I'm excited to have him here, excited to be working with him. I've gotten to hear him speak already and so very excited for the message um, that he has to share with you this morning. All right. Well, thank you. I always, always am kind of nervous when someone gives me a really good introduction like that because the odds are can you actually live up to it or not. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll test this out. Um, but like, like Craig said, moved here from the southern part of Indiana, right across the river from uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And just being here the last six, seven weeks, there's some things I've had to kind of get used to living in California that are a lot different than living in Indiana. For example, one of the things is I come from a state where it's basketball crazy, basketball mad. Everybody plays basketball, has a favorite team. And so the very first time I tried to take my daughter to the park out here, like, we had to go to three parks before we found a park that actually had a basketball court. And in Indiana, like, a park can just be a basketball court. You know, like, that, that, that's all you need to call it a park. And so here we're like, we think they, there's, a, there's no basketball court here. There's a soccer field, but there's no basketball court. How did, how did this happen? And so that was a bit of adjustment. Uh, and one of the things I also had to adjust to moving from um, southern Indiana is from where, where I moved from. If you drove six hours south, you were in Atlanta, Georgia. And if you drove about four or five hours north, you were in Chicago, Illinois. But here, if you drive six hours south, you're in California. And if you drive four or five hours north, you're still in California. And so just the massive size was, was something I'm still getting used to. On a positive note, one of the things that I was really, I'm really getting used to and enjoying is that for, for you guys, 50 degrees is a cold day. And that is nice. I, I can get used to a place where 50 degrees is a cold day. One of the things I'm getting used to is that you go and visit snow. It's not something you have to live with. And so that was, to, I love this idea of, hey, I want to see some snow. I'll go see some snow and then I'll come back home. And so I, I'm totally getting used to that. 
One of the things that I'm really loving and discovering about California is that a lot of the people I meet, like everyone's working on a dream or a plan or a goal. Everyone's got a story that they want to tell with their life, and they're like, here's where I'm at now, but here's where I want to be. And so that's so encouraging and so refreshing to be around a, a group of people who are going someplace with their life. One of the things that I've been loving about California is I love a place that's so innovative, a place that gave birth to companies like Google and Apple and all these other tech companies. And so just real quick, how many people here would call themselves Android users? Like, you, you, it's the phone you use. Okay. How many people know that Jesus really loves Apple? All right. There we go. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Well, here's the deal. I'm just, I'm just joking. If, you, if you're an Android user, we, we can talk later. But uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you guys today was a story from the early days of Apple that's going to kind of illustrate and talk a little bit about where we're, where we're going and what we're talking about today. Now, you might have known this or you might not have known this. Apple was actually founded by three people. And each one of them is a little bit more famous than the next one. And so the first person you always think of when you hear about Apple is you think about this guy up here. Any, everybody recognize him? Anybody not know his? That's, yes, Steve Jobs, absolutely. Everyone knows Steve Jobs. Not as many people know the, uh, one of these other guys that founded Apple, this guy right here, also by the name of Steve. His name was Steve Wozniak, or Wozniak. Now, Steve Wozniak was actually the guy who designed and built the very first Apple computer. Uh, not a lot of people know that. Then there was a third guy that founded Apple. And very few people, unless you're a historian of the company or unless you've read about this, know this guy. His name is Ronald Wayne. Now, here's why a lot of people don't know about Ronald Wayne. When Apple was first being formed, each one of those three people kind of had their role. Okay, Steve, was the, Steve Jobs was... Even back in the early days, you know, brash, arrogant, impulsive, was going to go make it happen. Steve Wozniak actually had the technology, was actually the guy that was going to build the things. Ronald Wayne was, going to, was a little bit older than the other two, and he was going to be the guy that would kind of invested in the two younger guys, provided some direction, provided some oversight, kind of be the adult of the three. But here's what happened very early in the company's history. Ronald Wayne got scared about what investing in the two Steves might cost him. And so very early on, he sold his 10% stake in Apple for $800. He's like, I don't want to invest in these two guys. They're goofy. They're immature. They're imperfect. I'm not, I'm not wanting to do that. So, so he sold 10% for $800. A couple years later, Apple rewrote their charter and gave him another $1,500 as a final payout. So for the grand total of $2,300, he sold 10% of Apple. Today, that 10% is worth about $70 billion. Now, let me put that in perspective. If you were to fly, let's turn dollars into miles. If you were to fly from Sacramento and go about 2,300, 2,400 miles, you'd wind up close to New York City. If you were to fly from Sacramento and go 70 billion miles... You could go to Pluto and back about seven times. There is a huge difference between 2,300 and 70 billion. Now, we all look at this and we're like, okay, Ronald Wayne made a mistake. He should have stuck it out. He should have invested in the two younger guys. He cost himself a lot by not doing that. But that's because we have 2020 hindsight. We realize, looking back, okay, that was a big mistake. And see, what I'm thinking is that most of us make the same choice just about every day. And see, what I'm thinking is that God is often calling all of us into stories where we're investing in the lives of others. But we, just like Ronald Wayne, we look at the people God might be calling us to invest in, and it scares us. 
They're immature. They're arrogant. They're a know-it-all. They're goofy. I don't know if I want to spend the rest of my time investing in that. I think I'm going to trade an amazing story for what I immediately have in front of me. I'm going to keep my $2,300, and I'm going to miss out on $40 billion. I'm going to miss out on an amazing story that God has for me and just keep doing what I've already been doing. And we're not the first group of people that's ever had to face this problem. If you look way back in the Old Testament, in the early part of the book of Judges, you see another group of people that had the exact same issue come up in their lives. And so look, if you look in Judges chapter 2 at the very beginning, starting in verse 7, here's what it says. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all of the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So if you read in the Old Testament, you see that Joshua and, his, and the people that lived with him got to be part of some amazing stories. There were stories where there was no food and God provided. There were stories where there was no water and God provided. There were stories where they were stacked against impossible odds and God provided. And this whole generation faithfully served God. You could look at them as people and point to them and say, yeah, we want to be like them. Those are the people that are getting it right. Those are the people that are following God. But they made one really critical error. They didn't pass on their faith to the next generation. They did not invest what God had done in them into the next generation. And if you read the rest of the book of Judges, it's like some sort of crazy horror film, like mixed with Tarantino or something like that. It just does not, it doesn't look like it belongs in the Bible because it's just story of abuse after abuse after abuse, story of war after war after war, story of people treating each other in the most inhumane ways possible. And you're like, how did this happen? Where did this come from? It was quite simple. One generation failed to invest in the next generation. And the very end of the book of Judges, one of the most tragic verses ever says, in Judges 21, 25, it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. An entire generation was lost because one generation failed to invest in another. The nation fell apart because one generation failed to invest in the other. I wonder how many amazing stories could have been told that weren't told. I wonder how many... Cool, amazing things could have happened, but didn't, because one generation didn't invest in the next. Now, luckily, that's not the last book of the Bible. Luckily, it's not, and everyone died and was miserable at the end. What we have is throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you see where God would send men and women to the nation of Israel and to bring the people back and to show them a better way. He would raise up other judges like Samuel and Deborah to invest in the people. He would raise up kings like David and Josiah to kind of rule the people and show them, okay, there's a way that's of life that's better. He would raise up prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah who would paint this picture of a different way of living, a different way of life where things don't have to be the way they currently are. And for 1,500 years throughout the Old Testament, you see God raising people up and saying, okay, you can, you can invest in others. You can make a difference this way. And finally, it culminates in the life of Jesus. God sends Jesus to invest in 12 guys that at first glance make no sense. Like if you're sending the son of God to handpick 12 people to invest in, you would pick, you know, you'd say, okay, who are we going to pick? We're going to pick the people that will get the most return on investment. We're going to pick the brightest, the smartest, the most theologically astute. Jesus doesn't pick any of those. He picks 12 ordinary guys. 
And he, Jesus invests in it, and it doesn't seem like it works a lot of times. Like, Jesus is investing in these guys, and you're like, is anything actually happening? Two guys that kind of stand out particularly in my mind are James and John, a pair of brothers. And you see story after story of where Jesus is investing in James and John, and it's like, are they even getting it? There's this really funny story in the book of Mark, and we're going we're to look at the verses. And it starts off this way. It says, they were on their way, Jesus and the disciples. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. So he gathers the twelve disciples together and gets ready to share something. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus is having kind of like kind of an intimate moment with his disciples. He's sharing something really from his heart. Here's what's happening. Here's what this has all been about. The very next verse says this. The very next verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. Okay. What do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. So here's, let me, let me kind of paint the picture. Guys, let's gather around. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be, I'm going to die. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to raise again three days later. And here are James and John over in the corner. What's that, Jesus? Um, you know, okay. Well, oh, yeah. Hey, hey, Jesus, can you do me a favor? Can you make us the two most powerful people in the kingdom right after you? Can we be rich and famous? Can we? And you got to imagine Jesus is just like, oh, guys. Like, have you ever had that moment where you're investing your time and effort into someone else and you're sharing with them something that's really important? And they're like, uh, okay, yeah, what, whatever. Um, can, can I have something to eat? Can I have a snack? Can I have this? And so Jesus is, is investing in James and John, and they completely miss the point. They're like, hey, we just want to be rich and powerful. And so you got to figure that Jesus is there, and he's thinking, you know what? Patience, Lord, patience. But Jesus doesn't abandon them. Jesus doesn't give up on James and John. There's another funny story in Luke 9 where, once again, Jesus is with the disciples. And here's what it says. It says, But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, like, like, okay, James and John were large and in charge, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? Okay, James, John, come here. Come here, buddy. We don't kill people when we disagree with them. All right? That might sound like a good idea, but trust me, long term, it's not going to be a good strategy for what we're trying to do here. So if someone disagrees with us, we don't call fire down and try to burn them alive. All right? All right. Okay, good. But Jesus doesn't give up on James and John. It must have been tempting often to give up on James and John. But if you look at the rest of their story, what you see is that James and John go on to become pillars of the faith. After Jesus was, died and rose again, James becomes the first person in the Bible to die for his faith. The very first person to give his life up for the sake of Christ was James. This immature, know-it-all guy who wants, to, who wants money, power, and to burn people becomes someone who's willing to die for his faith. John outlives everyone. That's not, not because they didn't try to kill him. They tried several times, and he kept surviving. Eventually, he's exiled to an island by himself. John goes on to write five books of the Bible. John talks more about the love of Jesus than anyone else in the New Testament. 
And this is all because Jesus chose to invest in these two guys. He chose not to give up on them when it would have been so easy to do so. It would have been so easy to walk away and say, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the investment in time. But for thousands of years, we've gotten to be blessed by the words of John and by the example of James because Jesus didn't give up on them. He invested in the next generation. And so let's fast forward to today. My hope and prayer is that as a church family, we would be a group of people that would invest in the next generation, that we would be part of the amazing stories God is going to tell in their lives. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, Jeremy, I'm not Jesus. Jesus might have been able to invest in people like James and John and totally change their lives, but I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well, see, the thing is, is that this is not a new development. This is not a new situation. This isn't unique to 2015. For thousands of years, God's given us a template for what does it look like to invest in the next generation. And it occurs way, way, way back in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, this is one of the first bits of scripture that a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl would learn as they were learning about God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we kind of get a glimpse of what does it mean and what does it look like to invest in the next generation. Here's what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What this passage of Scripture shows us is that how you invest in one generation from the next generation is first, you follow God with all that you are. You give him all of your strength, all of your heart, all of who you are as a person. You give that to God. And then you share that with the next generation. You take advantage of the everyday opportunities that exist for all of us. See, even though this was written thousands of years ago, it still kind of plays true today. What does he say? He says, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Okay, maybe we're driving instead of walking, but you use car rides as a way to share what God's doing in your life with your kids. You use everyday moments when you're sitting at home to talk about what God's doing. You talk about it before you go to bed. You mention it in the morning. You put stuff up around your house that's a reminder of what God has been doing and what God is doing. I wanted to show you a picture of something. In uh, our living room, I have this on the wall. And this is a picture of the very first mission trip my wife and I got to go on together over in Ethiopia. This is a group of the kids that we got to work with. And I had this made, and it hangs up on our wall. And for me, it's a reminder every single day when I see it that God is at work all around the world. It's not just here in California. It's not just in the U.S., but God is at work all over the world changing lives and doing things. And anytime someone comes over to a house, they see that. It usually leads to a question. And so I get to have a conversation. And so the way that we invest in the next generation is we have conversations with them. We put things around our house to remind us. You don't have to do anything nearly as, I actually got that for my wife as a Christmas present. So it can be as simple as a sticky note on a mirror. Hey, God loves you. Good luck today at school. Or hey, praying for you. But we take advantage of everyday opportunities. We take advantage of the moments around us. And so what a lot of people do is they make the mistake of thinking that before they're qualified to invest in the next generation, that they need to be certified in like child development theory, know all the Old Testament prophets, have a degree in psychology, and have raised four kids who all went on to become 
uh, missionaries overseas. And they're like, well, until I've done all that, I'm not really qualified to invest in the next generation. But see, what the next generation needs is not a perfect example. What the next generation needs is a living example. It is completely okay if you think Noah had Ten Commandments and Moses was on the ark. You know, it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. You just switch the names. It's completely okay if you don't have all these degrees and stuff like that. Because here's the deal. What we do is we're not perfect. We point to the one who is. We can't change people's lives. But we point to the one who can. We don't have all the answers. But we point to the one who does. And so our job is not to be a perfect example. Our job is just to be a living example. Because the goal is for someone to say, if God can do it in their life... Maybe he can do it in mine, too. If God can change someone else, maybe he can change me. And right now there are people in this church and in this community who, have, who are diligently investing in the next generation. And what I want to do is I want to take a second and I want to honor them. So if you are someone who works with infants, toddlers, elementary kids, middle school, high school, if you are a teacher or a coach or something like that, will you stand for just a second and let us applaud you for investing in the next generation? Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. For everyone that was sitting, my challenge for you is to join them. And here's why. Every fall in churches all across America, families come to church hoping that maybe this year life can get back on track. It happens without question. Every fall, new families show up in church thinking, is there hope for me? Is there hope for my kids? Is there hope for my family? And I want to make sure that by this fall, we have enough leaders in place that we can invest in the next generation and tell them a different story. Maybe their story up to this point is that no one cares. Maybe for them, everyone has always traded them out for something immediate. Maybe for them, there hasn't been much hope. And my goal is for the fall that we are a church full of leaders ready to invest in that next generation. See, for me, it's not just wiping a runny nose. It's not just singing a song or doing a silly game or dance or teaching a Bible story. It's investing for the long term. It's investing in the amazing stories God is going to tell in the next generation. Like Craig said earlier, about 80% of all people who come to Christ do so before the age of 18. If spiritually, if we're going to be serious about making disciples, there's no smarter place to invest than in the next generation. And so if you're someone who wants to be a part of those amazing stories, part of seeing lives change, part of seeing people find hope and families find hope, then in your bulletin you'll see a little uh, I want a I Connect card. And on those Connect cards, I'm going to ask you to fill those out and on the back on the volunteer spot, check it off and just simply write Next Generation. You can put it in the bulletin, you can hand it to me, or you can put it in the plate later when we take up offering. You can hand it to me after the service. But I'm looking for groups of men and women who want to invest in the next generation. And we're going to do the hard work of training you. We're going to do the hard work of making sure you're ready. I promise you I'm not going to throw you in there next week with a bunch of uh, junior high boys and be like, figure it out, good luck. No, I take this seriously. I think investing in the next generation is an important thing. And so we're going to do the hard work of getting you prepared and getting you ready. Because like I said, there is no greater place to invest. Now, just for a second, I want you to think about something. 30, 40 years ago, Ronald Wayne missed out on a $40 billion opportunity. I want to take a second, and here's the deal. I can't promise you that investing in the next generation is going to get you $40 billion. I wish I could, but odds are you're probably not going to be investing in someone who's going to be the next tech mogul or anything like that. So 
can't promise you $40 billion. I can promise you that you'll get to be a part of some amazing stories. I can promise you that there are dozens of kids, hundreds of kids in our community that smile, but every day there's pain behind the eyes. And that no one really cares for them, no one really has invested in them, and you'll get to be a part of changing their life story. That you'll get to be a part of writing a new chapter in their life. And so imagine for with me for a second what Natomas could look like 20 years from now if as one church we were serious about investing in the next generation. 20 years from now, how many girls won't find their identity in a boyfriend or their circumstances, but will find their identity in the fact that they're the daughter of a king? 20 years from now, how many young men will choose to stick with the family instead of walk away because they remember the example that in fourth grade that Mr. Chris set for them, set for them. And they're like, you know what? Mr. Chris was a good, it was a good dad or a good husband. And if he can do it, I can do it too. How many people 20 years from now, how many spiritual giants are there right now that we don't even recognize because they're a goofy little sixth grade boy, but 20 years from now, they're going to be leading dozens of people to Christ or rescuing hundreds of people from sex trafficking. And all, they, all that really needs to spur that story forward is an adult to take notice and invest in them. How many amazing stories are sitting dormant in our community right now, and all they need is for someone to invest for the long term? How different could our community be 20 years from now? How many children are trapped in cycles of poverty, but 20 years from now, they're going to get to write a new story because the people in this room today chose to invest in them for the long term. That's what my prayer is. My prayer is that we would be people who take what God has given us, invest it in the next generation, and see amazing stories happen. That's my prayer, and so I just want to kind of pray with you right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to avoid the mistake of Joshua and his generation, where we saw all the good that you could do, and we saw all the things that were possible but we failed to pass it on. Lord, my prayer is that we would be a generation that invests in the next, that we would do the hard work of investing for the long term, that we would find a group of guys or find a group of girls and, or find a group of brand new parents who are just looking for someone that understands and will give them some hope. And Lord, I pray that as we go forward and as we leave and as we go out into our communities, that we would be hope bringers, that we would be people who invest long term for your sake. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.